This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program. As always, I am your humble host, Caleb Cockwit. It is great to be with you again this evening. We're going to go ahead and start off as we usually do with our Alabama Department of Public Health update on what's going on with the coronavirus here in the state of Alabama. Now, you will notice there that there are 12,376 confirmed cases, 157,566 total have been tested. There have been, we actually exceeded 500 today. We hit that mark today, 504 deaths in this state. And then also you can see down there that in the last 14 days, we've had just barely under 4,000 cases. Now, I really want you to, to wrap your head around that because that is serious. That is significant. And we talked yesterday about how those numbers are actually going down in the past week, that we had a really bad week the week before. But think about this. If we have just barely over 12,000 cases in the state of Alabama, and we've got nearly 4,000 of those happening within the, the past two-week period, that means that about a third of the cases have happened within the past two weeks. And that really shouldn't be anything that's too surprising. We'll go over that a little bit with some of these other graphics, but I mean, that is a significant amount that just in the past couple weeks, and this this thing has really been going on since the tail end of February. That's really where stuff started making its way to Alabama, where we started seeing cases of the virus. I think that our first confirmed case was the first week in March, maybe the second week in March, but we've been dealing with this for a couple of months now, and the fact that about a third of all of our confirmed cases have happened in the past 14 days that that's a pretty big deal. So let's go ahead and look at the most recent numbers in new cases. And you can see if we're looking at the the previous 14-day average, and we were talking about this yesterday, that you can see why a lot of those cases would have been taking place over the past two weeks. But you will also notice that since then there has been a bit of a drop-off. And so we we had a really, really big day. We had a spike on the 14th there. But it's starting to go down a little bit. We've been hanging out around the 300 mark pretty much ever since then, with the exception of this most recent Sunday. And so really, if you're looking at the statistics, and, and again, this is something that I've been talking about for a while, that we were going to see a significant spike. And if our neighbors in Georgia and Florida were any indicator Right after that initial spike, we were going to see a decline. So hopefully that comes to us in the next couple of weeks. Hopefully that is the case. But right now, it appears as though what we have going on here uh, is if you're looking at the numbers and, and how they're probably going to happen, how they're projected to take place, and this isn't just based on models. This is comparing Georgia, which is a very similar state, obviously more people, but with the exception of the Atlanta, if you take the Atlanta metropolitan area out of Georgia, then Georgia's a state that looks very similar to Alabama in a lot of ways. And the same could be said with Florida, especially the, the top part of Florida, the panhandle. Those are areas with very similar climates, with very similar cultures. And so they're a pretty good indication 
of what our state is going to look like. And, and they had a significant spike when people started moving around a lot and then it started to calm down. And so that's most likely what is going to happen here. And remember that we're talking specifically about cases. We're not even talking about people that get really sick with this thing that have to be hospitalized, people that eventually die. The only thing that we've seen a, a pretty gigantic spike in the past 14 days in is cases. As we showed you yesterday in our comparisons, the statistics for virtually everything else, hospitalizations, death, those have actually all gone down over the past week. And so we'll go ahead and look at this, and, and because I think that the increase in testing may be attributing to it, but if you will look at the new testing per day on this graph, you'll see that at least in the past three days, we really haven't been doing all that much testing. In fact, we've been pulling significantly less than average testing numbers over the course of the past three days. Now, before that, we had a substantial increase in testing, and, and that may be at least part of the reason that we're seeing more cases coming out today, although the lag shouldn't be that far behind. And so I think that you could see that testing is somewhat contributing to the increase in numbers, but at least the more recent numbers, not that much. And granted, having 290 new cases today, which we do have, is, is significant, but it's also a little bit below the 300 mark that we've been seeing over the past few days. So it is it is a little low compared to the daily average, but it's really about on par. I don't even know that it makes sense to to talk about it as though it's below average. It's it's a negligible difference statistically. So the really important stats as we always talk about are the hospitalizations and the deaths because of course we kind of knew this going in and this was a, a very common talking point on both sides that we knew that just about everybody was going to get sick with this thing at some point. Now, we didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. We didn't know exactly what that point was, and we didn't know exactly how much medical supplies we were going to need, how overwhelmed our system would be. But at the beginning, at least, this they've moved the goalpost on us since then. But at the beginning, at least, the big talking point was, yeah, pretty much everybody's going to get this virus. And at some point then uh, everybody's going to get it. The reason that we're trying to flatten the curve, as it were, is to make sure that everybody doesn't get it at once and everybody overwhelms the system. See, here's the transition. Here's the difference. Now, at least part of the country, and I find it just baffling, that it seems to have fallen more or less along party lines. Not entirely, but... A lot of the people on the left, at least the prominent ones, the blue check marks on Twitter, the people that actually hold elected office, it seems that a lot of the Republicans, for the, the most part, are saying, we got to go ahead and open this thing back up. And most of the Democrats are saying, no, let's keep it closed down. And I, I'm not offering criticism. I'm just offering an observation here that I've even seen the people that are protesting to open it back up. They're all people that are holding giant pro-Trump flags, and I mean, you can tell that they're primarily Trump voters. When we were out on the Capitol steps, when I did a show live from there, you saw a whole bunch of people that were, were wearing pro-Trump shirts or carrying pro-Trump flags that were the protesters, and then the opposite was true for people that did counter-protesting, and, and it seems like somehow this thing has become a partisan issue, which is astounding to me. And I think that really it is indicative of the fact 
that our country is so far gone, it is so divided, that even something like this, that there's no reason that it should be partisan one way or the other, has somehow become a Democrat versus Republican issue. And I've just been really dumbfounded at how all of that happened. I'm not saying that ultimately that you you have to be one or the other. I know that there are some people that are looking at it that are still concerned about it, still want to be cautious about it, but still want to open it up. And there are some people that are saying we need to close it up. I mean, for goodness sake, the city of L.A. said that they're going to remain closed until August, which I would say is a dumb decision regardless of how bad it was there. You never go ahead and decide several months beforehand in an emergency like this that you're just going to continue to be closed. The only logical explanation for that is that the person making the the calling the shots and making those decisions is a partisan hack that wants to virtue signal to the rest of the people how virtuous he is and how, look, how on board I am with the Democrat agenda that I'm willing to close it up all the way until August. Look, if this were about protecting citizens, you would take the stance of, even if you believed it should stay shut down, you would take the stance of, well, we'll wait and see. I'm going to make those decisions as they come, and, and you know, come the beginning of August, we'll let you know about that. We, we may announce it in mid-July, whether or not we're going to be closed until August, but we're not announcing it now. That's several months into the future. And so it really has been a crazy thing to see how this whole thing has become very partisan. And here in the Yellowhammer state, you can see that when it comes to hospitalizations and deaths, which we were talking about yesterday, we're actually down. And so if you'll look at the hospitalization right here, you'll see that today's numbers are still a little lower uh, than, or still a little higher than we were expecting, but our overall rate is down. Now, if you were to calculate that out and to look even with the new numbers, which, you know, having plus 60 hospitalizations is nothing to sneeze at, but just looking at how down it's been the past four or five days, that's really not a surprise. And one thing that I want to point you to here is if you're going to look at the hospitalizations, and remember, hospitalizations and deaths are lagging rates. They show up a few days late. If you compare the, the small spike in hospitalizations to having over 40 hospitalizations. Did I say over 60? I meant over 40. Uh, over 40 hospitalizations here. Now, compare that with the chart that we just looked at with new cases. Oop, sorry, that's the update. You see this chart with the new cases? You'll notice that six days in the past, there was a pretty substantial spike. Now, back to the hospitalizations you'll see that there's a pretty big spike today. So what's probably happening is this spike is about six days old. And so what happened is though a lot of those people that had the confirmed cases where we had a really big day where a lot of people were confirmed to have the virus, there's an incubation period. They probably, uh, you know, depending on how, how far along they were when they got the test, and that's impossible to gauge, that they probably got really bad and had to go to the hospital today. So we're, again, seeing a lagging statistic on that. And then if you look at the deaths, the deaths continue to remain pretty low. They are up a little bit from yesterday. We've had a really tremendous past four days, really, 
being significantly below average, keeping it uh, either 10 or below all four of those days. And then we had a little bit of an uptick today where it went up to 15. But again, this is a lagging statistic. We'll just have to keep an eye on that. And if your hospitalizations are way up today, well, those tend to be the people, I mean, obviously not all of them, but that tends to be the pool from which people come from in the deaths. And we've had very few hospitalizations up until today, and we've had very few deaths up until today. That may change in a couple of days, lagging behind the hospitalizations and seeing more deaths from that pool of people. I certainly hope that they don't. I pray that they don't, but we'll have to keep an eye on it to see if that is the case. We could have a significant amount of deaths from this thing if that winds up being the case. I tend to think that it won't. And that goes back to something I've been saying for a couple of days now, that I think what's going on here is most of the people that were already vulnerable and susceptible to it have pretty much already gotten it because there's no way to explain that our confirmed cases are on the rise and have been for the past two weeks. But our deaths and hospitalizations are down. And so that means a lot of the people that were most vulnerable to this thing, tragically, of course, one loss of life is too many, have already lost their life to this disease. And that means that opening up even poses less hazard now than it did then because those were people that, that were not unfortunately able to be saved. And it's not going to cause those same people to, to you know, be harmed by this. And most of the people that have been able to avoid it, that do have pre-existing conditions that might die from it, thankfully have mostly been able to stay safe from it. So th there's even less risk now than there was in the past few weeks. And again, there was really no risk at any of those points anyway, so far as we can tell, because we kept the hospitalizations down. And so it seems as though what's going on here is that uh, everything has, has essentially gone the way that we originally planned to when we talked about mitigation. And by that, what I mean is we never even really came close to hitting our upper limit of capacity when it came to things like ventilators, ICU beds, overall hospital space. We never even came close to that. And uh, when it comes to deaths, of course, any death is tragic. But we're having significantly less deaths than even the projections that factored in mitigation originally predicted. And that was even if we didn't overwhelm the healthcare system. So not only did we not overwhelm the, overwhelm the healthcare system, even the ones that, even the models that were showing a scenario where we didn't also had more deaths. And so we've excelled on this thing in every conceivable way, which means that we're still looking relatively good. And I do want to pivot away from this for just a second because there was one story that I think it really showcases how incredibly wrong a lot of this stuff was. And, and this is one of the reasons that I've said from the beginning, even though I agreed with a lot of the social distancing, I agreed with a lot of the guidelines, I agreed with a lot of businesses shutting down when this whole thing was starting out because we, we had so little information, aired on the side of caution. Those were all good things. Here's the problem. They made it mandatory. That should never have happened. They should never have mandated to people that you cannot open. And one person in a particularly hard-hit state with this, because they have an incredibly tyrannical governor, which I, 
you know, if there was any case study, if there was any case study on the dangers of kicking out a really good governor and having a really terrible one, there are two great examples here. Bashar, who replaced Matt Bevin in Kentucky, who is without a doubt one of the best governors in America. And then here in Michigan, we have, uh, what's her name, Whitaker, that has replaced one of the best governors in Scott Walker in the country as well. And these two states got together, and it's interesting that in both cases, in both cases, that was largely because of the teachers' union. And so in, in Michigan, you've got them kicking Scott Walker out and replacing him with, I mean, a woman that is incredibly drunk with power. It's obvious with the things that have come out of this state. One that is talking about how... Uh, this is the really crazy one that you remember we talked about this on the program a few weeks ago, how abortion is life-saving and how it is an essential service. I mean, just bat crap insanity. But there you have it, two states, Kentucky and Michigan, getting rid of two of the best governors in the entire country and trading them out for wild socialist I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be unsympathetic, especially since I have family in Kentucky. But at the same time, I, I kind of look at those voters and say, I'm sorry, you got exactly what you voted for. I don't take any pleasure in the fact that you're having a hard time of it. I don't take any pleasure in the fact that you guys have awful executives running your state. But at the same time, this should be a lesson for the future that maybe it makes sense to have somebody that is a little bit more level-headed, that is a actual fiscal conservative, that, that actually wants to do things right for your state and cares about the people, and it's not about virtue signaling to their buddies in D.C. Maybe that makes a big difference, and I think this is a pretty good case study in it. And in this particular case, there was a Michigan barber who defied the order, of course, to keep his shop closed, and the guy... I mean, he did everything right. He did everything a reasonable person would be expected to do. Because when it came to shutting down, he complied with the order. He did exactly, it seems to me, as that he's a law-abiding citizen that just was doing the best that he could. He wanted to obey the law. When they told him to close down, he did close down. And when that happened, what he did was he sent out requests for a small business loan. Wasn't able to get the small business loan. He tried to go through the system and handle it the way that his government prescribed to. He jumped through all the hoops. He went through all the channels. They still didn't allow him to have a small business loan. And so he's continuing to keep his shop closed. He's trying to wait on the system to work itself out. The system isn't helping him. So eventually he says, look, I'm going to lose my business if I don't open my doors really soon. And so he does. And when he does, he takes all the necessary precautions. He sanitizes the chairs literally every single time a person hops out of the chair and he gets a new customer to come in. He sanitizes the chairs. He's actually moved several of his chairs out so that the chairs can be far enough apart. I mean, the guy takes every precaution. He's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to be reasonable. And then the state tells him that he's still got to close. 
And so what happens is, and I, I love this part of the story, and it's, it's very reminiscent of some of the sheriffs here in Alabama that have said, no, we're just not going to enforce this on churches and businesses. They're, they're just trying to, to do, you know, they're, they're trying to exercise their constitutional rights. They're trying to do the things that they believe in. And so we're not going to enforce these insane stay-at-home orders. And so there in Michigan, the state police are ordered to arrest the man, and they refuse. They just straight up say, no, we're not going to do it, which I mean, bravo to the, those guys. They've got some serious gahonies going forward with that. The state police just straight up refuse to arrest the guy. And I applaud them for that. I mean, I, I don't like the idea of police officers making their own decisions on which laws to enforce. I think that there's a reason that discretion ought to be limited. I think that, of course, law enforcement officers ought to have some discretion. I think that that's actually a good thing, and even our legal system allows for that. But when it comes to things like this, the the state police refuse to enforce it. First of all, we have to keep in mind that these things aren't even actually laws. They are edicts that are passed down through an executive power, sometimes legitimately given to the governor through Congress. For example, even though I disagreed with Kay Ivey's order, I agree that constitutionally, according to Alabama's constitution, she did have the right to issue them. She shouldn't have that power, but she does. But I think that this is... First of all, a glaring example of why no governor, no one person, should have that kind of sweeping power. But second of all, and I think that this is a lesson that we can take away from it too, that no matter how much power you grant to an executive, no matter how much power you grant to somebody in a high office, they got to have the people on the ground actually willing to execute those orders in order for it to work. And that's part of the federalist system. That is part of the design that if an executive was going to be wildly power-hungry and was going to do something that made no sense, if it was going to target people like this guy, just trying to make a living and, and feed his own family, that that person, if the police officers and the people on the ground, the local enforcement that is in charge of doing that, they see some kind of grave injustice done, they're going to say no. That's actually a function of federalism that we specifically worked into the system. And it's something that acts as a check on people that believe that there are no limits to their power. It's a very wise instrument that, that is worked into the system that is a feature of it, not a glitch. And it is a check against tyranny. And so this same guy... State police refuse to enforce it. So what happens then, the government agency that is in charge of licensing barbers decides to pull his license. And in response to that, the guy basically says, okay, pull my license, don't care. Shop's still open, still cutting hair. Him losing his license did not inhibit his ability to cut hair. I'm sure his haircuts look exactly the same now as they did then. He didn't magically forget how to cut hair just because he didn't have a piece of paper that told people that he can, that he can cut hair. And I find it absurd that virtually every state in the nation has a licensing system for barbers anyway. 
even though I tend to be very libertarian on these kind of things, and I tend to v- uh, very much oppose licensing as much as humanly possible, there are some areas I get it. I understand why not any person can just call themselves a doctor and be allowed to practice medicine. That makes sense to me. I don't like government intervention. I would rather there be a an even lower amount of government intervention there if possible, but ultimately I do see that there is a vested interest in the state and in the citizens of said state for being able to know whether or not the guy who you're going to have, you know, surgery, uh, perform surgery on you, that you know that guy is an actual medical doctor, and that if he is practicing medicine and does not have a license like that, then okay, there, there doesn't need to be a legal penalty for that. That That is grossly endangering a person. Barbers, really? What's the worst thing that happens? They give you a bad haircut. Your sideburns aren't even. Like, that. that's the worst thing that can happen to you. Look, if somebody's a lousy barber, the free market will take care of that. People just stop going to that barber. And then that'll actually reward and eliminate competition for people that are actually good and competent at their job. There's no reason for the government to be regulating barbers. That's ridiculous. I've never heard someone make a compelling case for that. I did have one guy that uh, was actually involved at one point in the state legislature here in Alabama try to make that case to me. And I like him, super good guy. I, I you know, one of the best people I know, but I think he's wrong on this one. Uh, he was talking about how what it really boils down to is making sure that the people there are operating healthily, that they're not doing things that would be uh, issues with sanitation, which it's a close contact industry. I get it. Why can't we do that the way that we handle the food system? We don't license cooks. We don't license chefs. I know because I've done those jobs. I've worked in restaurants. I've cooked people's food. And it seems to me that you would be far more likely, far more likely to injure somebody and bring some kind of injury upon them by mishandling their food than you would by, I don't know, accidentally cutting their ear. I mean, neither one's good, but you're going to do an awful lot more damage to somebody if you're mishandling their food or you're not cooking the food properly. And we don't seem to have a problem with that. We don't have to license cooks. We'll take an establishment, a restaurant, an individual business and give them a health food score. And I I see that the state has a vested interest in that. That makes sense to me too. And by the way, they already do that with barbershops. Have you ever noticed that if you go into a barbershop, there's a state health rating, just like there is at a restaurant? Yeah, well, we already do that. Why the need for licensing? It doesn't make sense. And so in this case, when the barber lost his license, now if he continues to operate, they're not going to nail him on the fact that he's operating despite the fact that there is a shutdown order because the state police just straight up told them that they're not going to enforce that. So now what they're trying to do is they've just pulled his license, and the only reason they pulled it is their their own stated reason for doing so is because he's violating the uh, order to stay closed down. And so now they're going to nail him on a technicality for operating without a license, even though the only reason he doesn't have a license is because the state targeted him. I think the Supreme Court 
is going to have something to say about this. I mean, this is as much targeting as you could get. I, you talk about, for example, one of the reasons that in Masterpiece Cake Shop, that the reason that the Supreme Court sided with Jack Phillips is because it seemed like they were targeting this guy for being a Christian, which of course they were. But I get that there's not the religious liberty argument here. I'm not trying to equate the two. But I'm saying that if you're talking about the state seeming to have some kind of vendetta against somebody, I don't think that you could make a better case for anybody having that than right here. I mean, the state just absolutely wants to destroy this guy, and now he's subject to imprisonment in a state penitentiary and a fine of up to $1,000 a day for each day that he operates. That's about as heavy-handed as it gets. And you've got to know, because I think that a lot of this has been overblown, and I've been very open about that, but you've got to know that the people in the state aren't sitting around talking about this and going, you know, haircuts, they're the real problem. Because we know for a fact that 99% of all coronavirus cases come from people getting haircuts. That's insane. To my knowledge, I don't even know of a single case of coronavirus that came from a haircut. Now, even if there had been several, it still wouldn't be an argument against this, but it just doesn't make any sense. The only explanation that makes sense, that it makes all the puzzle pieces fall into place and makes their behavior make some kind of coherent logical sense, is that they, it has nothing to do with public health. Their motive is power and control. They want this guy shut down because they told him to shut down and he said no. It's about defiance. It's about the ability to make citizens bend to their will. That's what this is ultimately about. It's not about public safety. It's not about protecting people from getting a haircut. Ultimately, it boils down to that. The government wants to hold the big stick and prove that they can do this and that they can make you do whatever they want you to do. That's not an American idea. That's not an American spirit. We should be trying to find ways to get the government off your back as much as possible. That's what this country was founded upon. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people in office now, including Governor Whitmer, who tends to believe the exact opposite, that government exists to be used. The government exists to prove to people how powerful you are and that you can make them do what you want them to. It's really a sad sight. So, I'll tell you what, we'll go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. We're going to go ahead and go now to the Daily Dose of Stupid. Now you messed it up. (laughs) You're stupid. We actually have a daily dose of stupid, a double daily dose of stupid, rather, for you today. So there's two for the price of one today. Now the first one... It's stupid just in the the existence of this story itself is stupid. You don't have to look for it. It's like a uh, it's like a container that you can eat. It's like a waffle cone. The cone is not only a delivery system for the ice cream, it's also edible. So in this one just the the mere existence of this story is stupidity 
in and of itself. Twitter has actually blown up over fat shaming. I kid you not, this is the, the big topic of discussion that is going on right now, whether it's okay to call somebody fat or to talk about, you know, I mean, you, you understand, this is a common social justice warrior talking point. So to understand where all this came from, Anderson Cooper the other night asked Nancy Pelosi in an interview about Trump using hydrochloroquine, and apparently he's, he's taking that. I didn't know that. Uh, I'm not sure exactly why. I, I, I mean, obviously, I haven't been following this all that closely. I learned it when Anderson Cooper was talking about it. But here's Anderson Cooper talking to Nancy Pelosi, taking hydrochloroquine, and he asked her whether she, he, she thought it was a good idea. So this is Anderson Cooper and, and Nancy Pelosi's response. As far as the president is concerned, um, the uh, our, he's our president, and I would rather he not be taking something that has not been approved uh, by the scientist, especially in his age group and in his, shall we say, weight group, what is morbidly obese, they say. So I, I, uh, I, I think it was, it's not a good idea. <laughs> okay, so a couple things here, first off. Uh, President Trump has the best doctors on earth. If he's taking hydrochloroquine, there's a good reason for it. If they've actually given him some kind of regimented hydrochloroquine just in case, I don't understand why. I'm not a doctor. I've looked at some of the studies. There have been some studies that, that seem to be pretty darn conclusive that hydrochloroquine doesn't really help. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, I don't know. Maybe Trump's doctors are seeing some information that I'm not privy to. But if that's something that the White House doctors are recommending to him, there's probably a pretty darn good reason. And they certainly wouldn't be administering that treatment to him if they believed it had some kind of really negative side effect or something that was going to put him in some kind of mortal danger. I realize that there are very significant side effects to this drug, including even blindness, but that tends to come to people that are taking large doses of it every single day. This is presumably a much smaller dosage, and there's no reason for the president to stay on this for the rest of his life. And so, first of all, the premise is a little weird. This is something that would be harmful. But the funny thing is, Virtually everybody that's talking about the jab that she took at the guy's weight, talking about how he's morbidly obese, which, I mean, let's be honest, Trump's a big dude. Like, this isn't uh, some kind of well-guarded secret. I don't know if he technically qualifies as morbidly obese. I'm not, again, sure about his body mass index. I'm not a physician. I don't know what actually qualifies as that. But if he actually does qualify as morbidly obese, I don't know that's possible. I don't really see this as a big deal, but everybody that is talking about it, that this hashtag blew up, it's all people on the left. That's one thing that really astounded me for it, because I went into this thing expecting that there were going to be a whole bunch of the Trump supporters that were livid at this, that were very angry at Nancy Pelosi. That's what I was expecting. I was expecting another example of the let's switch jerseys that now all of a sudden the the people on the right are the ones that are concerned about fat shaming and the people on the left are the ones that aren't actually no. everybody that was talking about it was on the left. And what I find so hilarious about this is, um, there were some people on the right that were commenting on it, but they were commenting on the hypocrisy 
of the left being very concerned with fat shaming and we should never say anything or even mention somebody's weight. And then now when it happens to Trump defending Nancy Pelosi. Now that's a legitimate talking point. But the left is not characterizing it that way. What they're saying is that there are a whole bunch of people on the right. And again, I only saw like, I scrolled through Twitter for like a solid 20 minutes on this hashtag. I maybe saw two or three people that seemed like they were actually on the other side of this fight. And none of the, the blue check marks, your Ben Shapiro's, your Matt Walsh's, uh, your Glenn Beck's, all the other conservatives, the, the people on News Radio 1440, like Sean Hannity and Mark Levin, those were not the people that were talking about this. It was a bunch of random people on the left on Twitter. And the funny thing is the reaction has basically been like they they jumped to and rushed to defend Nancy Pelosi and saying that that didn't qualify as fat shaming. And people on the right basically treat it like it wasn't a big deal at all. And then the reaction from the left was, everybody on the right is so mad. Why are you so angry? Oh, President Trump, he can say whatever he wants to about people and insult people, but Nancy Pelosi can't. And the people on the right are just, they're scratching their heads like, we didn't make a big deal out of this. Like, nobody on the right's mad. And so it's, it's a, I guess it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that they imagined that would be the right's reaction to it. And because they imagined that would be the, the big Trump supporters, the diehard loyalist on Trump's side, would be very upset about this, they reacted to it as though that were really the case. But it's not happening. Not even the most fervent Trump supporters, guys like Charlie Kirk on the right, are even talking about this thing. I mean, it's basically just been one giant collective yawn from the right. Which, by the way, makes sense. We don't care about stupid crap like this. I mean, I'm not even the world's biggest Trump supporter, but, but even the people that are MAGA-MAGA all the time aren't even really talking about this thing. So she called the president fat. Big deal. First of all, he is fat. Second of all, even if he weren't, it's just a dumb personal attack. It doesn't really move the needle or do anything. The only thing that I think is a legitimate thing to point out is that the left makes a big deal about fat shaming when it's somebody that they really like. And all of a sudden, when it's somebody that they don't, then they're perfectly fine with it. When it's somebody like Tess Holliday that people on the right point out is like, no, she's not really somebody that people should emulate as far as a fitness regiment goes, that all of a sudden they're called hateful and closed-minded and all these other things, and they, they come out with all these fancy hashtags like fitness looks different for different people. Well, no, it actually kind of looks pretty much the same for everybody. I mean, granted, there are some people that, because of injuries or whatever, can't get to the level of fitness that other people can. But the standard of fitness is more or less uniform. There might be some variations, but if you're carrying an awful lot of extra fat, you're not in good shape. And that's just an objective truth. But all of a sudden, when Nancy Pelosi is the one that points that out, everybody else jumps to defend her. And it's just like, why? Here's the issue. What's actually being played out here and the reason that people on the left are actually talking about this is because it's internal. It's an internal conflict with them. What they are experiencing is cognitive dissonance. That somebody on their side that is a member of the woke brigade that is supposed to be more enlightened 
is talking like somebody on the right, calling somebody fat and pointing that out. And pointing out that it's not healthy, which it's not. And see, then they're at a crossroads because they don't know how to handle it. They're like that gif with uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective with Jim Carrey, that's got the arrow in each knee and he's going, ha, ha, ha. They don't know what to do with themselves. They can't figure it out because they know that they're supposed to be angry at people for fat shaming, but they also really like the fact that she did it to President Trump, and so now they're caught between a rock and a hard place and they don't know how to react. That's what's going on here. That's what's playing out. That's why it was trending. It's a bunch of people on the left having an internal debate with themselves about what they really ought to do. So that's really the issue here. And the thing about Trump is the guy's known for his personal insults. He's said stuff way worse and way meaner spirited and, and more spiteful than this. We all know that. I do wish that our politics were classier than this. I really do. I do wish that we didn't have the Speaker of the House calling the president fat on national TV. And I also wish that our president wasn't calling people fat on national TV. And there weren't countless hours of footage of the president making personal attacks against people. Yeah, I in an ideal world, that's what I really wish were to take place. But that's not the world we live in. And the same people that didn't make a big deal about it when Trump was throwing the insults at people and, and calling Rosie O'Donnell the pig or whatever... Those are the same ones that aren't making a big deal out of it now. I mean, I remember that Bill O'Reilly interview back when President Trump was running for president, where Bill O'Reilly, a person that most people kind of consider on the right, even though he's actually pretty moderate, he's center-right, got on the program and reprimanded President Trump, a longtime friend of his, and, and then candidate Trump, for calling her a pig and saying, why can't you just make the attack without making it personal? And so, the whole narrative falls apart. I wish our politics were classier than this. I really do, but guys, they're not. And let us we're fooling ourselves if we think that they are at this point. But I will say on the left, this is a side effect of living in a bubble. They live in such a closed-off bubble that only has their certain people, people on the left, people that think like they do, people that are very concerned about being woke. They live in such a secluded little bubble up in their ivory tower that they think because they've heard from their buddies about this story that that must be that there's all there is to it. Because if they heard from one of their buddies on the left that, oh, the right's going to freak out about this, they assume that it's happened. They don't actually know anybody on the right to react to. And so they just act as though that's how it happened, even though it's not really happening. That's the danger of living in that bubble. You assume that everybody else is talking about it because people in your circle are talking about this story. But the truth is, is there's just not that many people talking about it, to be perfectly honest. Not outside of the Twitterverse. So the second Daily Dose of Stupid has absolutely nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> it's completely disconnected. But the left is going nuts over this brand new documentary that's supposed to be coming out on FX on Friday. And it's about Norma McCur uh Norma McCorvery. McCorvey? McCorvey. I think that's how to say it. McCorvey. Now, for the 98% of you that don't know her, and by the way, I'm in that 98%. I just now learned who she was today researching this story. I mean, you can tell. I, I didn't even know how to pronounce the woman's name. So I've never even heard of this chick. So here's the backstory. 
uh, she's Jane Roe from Roe versus Wade. So you may know that in Roe versus Wade, there was actually an anonymous plaintiff, and that plaintiff was Norma McCorvey, but that they didn't know that until years later. And so the plaintiff was completely anonymous even after the decision came down from the Supreme Court. We didn't learn who the identity was until like a decade later or something like that. Anyway, so I learned a little bit about her. I learned a little bit about her background. And guys, her life is a royal mess. Like, regardless of where you stand on pro-life, pro-choice, whether you think she's a good person, a bad person, her life is a mess. And based on this, she had to deal with it. And some of it's not her fault. Like, she had to deal with child abuse. Well, that, that's not her fault, but that's also part of the reason that she's kind of messed up. She also had a teenage marriage that uh, was very unhealthy, didn't last, and then had a bout with lesbianism and w had a girlfriend for a long time who the, she then renounced in the 90s and uh, said that she had come out and converted as a Christian, but that wasn't necessarily what happened, and it wasn't legitimate, it wasn't real, it was all an act, and we'll actually talk about that a little bit later in this same segment. And then she's had three children, wound up keeping the first one and gave the other two up for adoption, which, I don't know, considering the circumstances of her life, that's probably a really good thing that those kids uh, went to different families. But apparently... There were also some discrepancies with how all this played out. For example, in the case that we're talking about with Roe v. Wade, there was a time where she had claimed that that pregnancy was the result of a rape. Then she came out later and said that she was lying about it because originally it wasn't rape. And then she said, no, it was rape. And that's how I got pregnant. And then later she admitted she made the whole rape story up. So, like, th this woman is, you know, a prime candidate for the Jerry Springer show is probably the nicest way to say all of that. But uh, there's a quote here by her that I think is really telling. Quote, I know, of I know how I felt when I found out that I was pregnant and I wasn't going to let another woman feel that way. Cheap, dirty, and no good. Women make mistakes. They make mistakes with men. And things happen. It's just mother nature at work. You can't stop it. You can't explain it. It's just something that happens. And that, of course, is, is talking about when she made the decision to get an abortion, which, by the way, wound up not happening because the case got tied up in the court and she had already given birth by that point. And so what happened is that son or daughter, I don't know which, wound up going to adoption. I really wonder how the family that wound up receiving that baby feels about whether or not she chose to abort her child or adopt. I bet they're probably pretty glad that she wasn't able to get an abortion, that she did instead have to give her child up for adoption. Uh, granted, I, I don't know, and I don't even think there's legally a way to find out how who wound up with that baby or how that happened, but I, I tend to imagine they're pretty glad that the law did not allow her to get an abortion at that point. But nonetheless, the essence of this quote is just completely wrong. And what I go back to is saying, well, I felt when I, I found out that I was pregnant, I felt dirty and cheap and no good. That wasn't the pregnancy. That was because of the sex. You were having regret based on your decision, and, and she goes on to explain this, that women make mistakes and they make mistakes with men. Well, yeah, but the answer to that mistake is not killing your child. That's the thing. 
that's not going to change the fact that you slept with somebody that you shouldn't have. Here, here's the issue with the whole free love movement and you should be able to have sex with anyone. And, and this is actually the prime ground zero, I guess you would say, of how we even got to a culture that can be accepting of something like abortion, as atrocious and vile as it is. There's a lie that's being told here and has been for decades now that human beings naturally are built, or well, they're not really even designed, they're just evolutionary creations. Even creation isn't a good word. It's hard to even describe this. They're, that we're basically all just sentient rocks and that we're just acting out in a play the way that we always have, that we don't really have free will and that ultimately we have suppressed our sexuality and so opening up the sexuality to everybody and you can just have sex with every, whoever you want to, whenever you want to, that that's something that's going to be liberating and psychologically better for us. It's a lie. Even women that see no moral scruples whatsoever with sleeping around, with sleeping with as many men as they want to, they feel that regret. Now they can deaden themselves to that regret over time, but God didn't design us that way. He didn't design us to have multiple sexual partners. Even men who, frankly, probably handle it better than women, just because you know we're more sexual beings than they are to some degree, uh, we can't handle it. It's psychologically not good for us. We're not designed to do that. And so this is especially true with women, although it's true with men as well. There creates inside of us a contradiction our conscience starts working on us and there is an awareness by us psychologically and spiritually that we've done something wrong. That we have basically allowed ourselves to be used as, and I know that I'm getting a little bit risque here, but there's not a more polite way to describe this. We have allowed somebody else to use our bodies as their self-pleasuring device. When we have sex without any commitment, when we have sex without a close relationship with that person, with that level of monogamy and intimacy that was only intended by God to happen between a man and a wife, then all of a sudden, something snaps inside of us, and we are aware of the fact that we have done wrong. I don't doubt the woman's feelings. I imagine that when that happened, she did feel dirty and cheap and used, and that was a bad feeling that she didn't want other women to experience. That sentiment is probably 100% correct. But that didn't come from her getting pregnant. That came from the sex. That came from her knowing that she did something she shouldn't have done. And so, the answer to that is not to kill the baby, Heck, that makes it worse in most cases. There's a reason there's a psychological damage that goes with abortion. There's a reason that women, even if they're pro-choice, feel depression after going through a traumatic experience like that. And so ultimately, it really does highlight one of the primary issues underlying the entire pro-choice movement. That... the action that creates that is wrong because you can tell in the way she talks about it. She's like, it's just mother and nature at work. It's just, you make mistakes and it just happens and there's not much you can do to control it. No, you can. That's the thing. You have the option of abstinence. 
you have the option to not jump in bed with people to whom you are not married and you don't have a firm commitment with. And that's really the issue that's underlying all of this. And so apparently the same woman in 1995 wound up actually converting to the pro-life movement. And apparently that was a lie. According to this new documentary, and they have it a recording of her in her own words, and, and this is what has been making the news rounds today, that she didn't actually convert, that she didn't actually become a Christian, that she did not actually become somebody that was pro-life and change her beliefs. She did so because she was offered a lot of money for it. Now, I'm guessing there are probably some details left out of that. I don't know. Frankly, I don't think that it makes much difference. But ultimately, when she reveals that she was paid to convert, that this wasn't something that was genuine, the director of the documentary, and based on what I read in this thing and in this article by the LA Times, I tend to agree with him, it seems like she was used by both sides. In other words, that she was young and vulnerable, and let's face it, her life is not exactly together. And that's probably part of the reason that she went into this case with anonymity, as opposed to just being who she was and, and revealing that to everybody from the onset, is because the pro-choice movement knew, look, this is not a good person to be our spokesperson. And so... That's what happened, and they went forward with that. But the funny thing about the left, and I think that I should let somebody on the left speak for themselves, and it almost wouldn't be a, a, a double daily dose of stupid if we didn't have AOC mentioned in it at some point. You can see this tweet by AOC. This is what the people on the left are celebrating, finding out that her conversion was not real. So this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Wow. Norma McCorvey a.k.a. Roe of Roe v. Wade, revealed on her deathbed that she was paid by right-wing operatives to flip her stance on reproductive rights. So like many things in the right-wing right -wing operations, it turns out a huge part of the anti-choice movement was a scam the entire time. Well now, guys, you know how often I make fun of AOC. But here she has a great point. Because every pro-lifer I know based their stance off of Norma McCorvey. I mean, whenever I ask somebody on the street, whenever I meet somebody that's in the pro-life movement, wherever I see somebody that's protesting outside of a Planned Parenthood or somebody that's there at the March for Life in D.C., and I ask, so, just out of curiosity, why are you pro-life? Like, oh, Norma McCorvey. It's no doubt. She's definitely the reason that I'm pro-life. I've never even heard of this chick until today. And granted, maybe that's because I'm younger, maybe because back in 1995, I was far more concerned with whether or not I was going to have a strawberry or a chocolate Pop-Tart for breakfast. But the point is, the idea that she is somehow instrumental to the pro-life movement, and to put it in AOC's words, that a, a large part of the pro-life movement is just a complete scam, I don't know of anybody that based any of that on it. Now, if there were pro-life people that actually did pay her to do this and paid her to be a spokesperson, knowing that she wasn't really a pro-life person and didn't really change her beliefs, that's kind of a rotten thing to do. And it's definitely not good, but the idea that this somehow significantly damages the pro-life movement, that all the pro-life people would suddenly be like, yeah, we're cool with baby murder. I mean, now that Norma Corvey turns out to be a fraud, well, yeah, just kill as many of them as you want. That's just retarded. 
nobody on the left or right could seriously look at this and think that this is going to be a significant blow to the pro-life movement. Again, I don't even know of anybody that knows about this. This is the first time I've even hearing this story. I had no idea who this person was. And even if somebody that were really big into the pro-life movement, even somebody that really were preaching this night and day, somebody like uh, you know the, the founder for the March for Life or some, somebody like that, uh, the, the woman that is depicted, obviously not the actress, but the woman who is depicted, Abby Johnson in, in, plan, uh, in what is it, uh, Unplanned, the movie Unplanned. If it turns out that she says, you know what, it was all a farce, I was just paid by pro-life people, and uh, I was never really pro-life. I mean, yeah, that would suck, but is it going to change my stance on pro-life? No. That's not the reason people get into it. That's not the reason people believe that killing a child is wrong. And I really do think what's going on here, too, because you have to be ignorant of history to even believe that. Remember that this woman converted in 1995. Does AOC, I mean, granted, she's the same age as me, so she was probably worried about her Pop-Tarts when 1995 was going on as well. Uh, Does AOC really think that there were no pro-life people before 1995? Like that this is the the big nexus of the pro-life movement and this being gone now creates a significant blow to them? Like, she's living in a fantasy world if she believes that. Actually, I think that's part of the issue is that AOC back in 1995, never matured past that point. <laughs> that unlike the rest of us, she was still primarily worried about what flavor of Pop-Tart she was going to have for breakfast. <laughs> but anyway, um, it does, though, highlight a giant difference in conservative principles and ideas and liberal principles and ideas. Generally speaking, people on the right, they don't base their ideas on people. Their ideas are based on a series of logical conclusions they have derived from their own ideology. Now, those ideologies have different origins in different places. Some people might, for example, be pro-life because the science suggests, and and because it's correct, that the thing growing inside a woman's womb is indeed a human baby. It has the human baby DNA, it has human baby parts— there's no chance that it's going to be a dog or a hippopotamus or a giraffe. It's a baby. And it doesn't have the same DNA as the mom. Ergo, it must be a unique human life. There are people that come at it, of course, from their religious perspective. That's the one that I come from, even though I agree with the scientific perspective. That it's because the child has a soul. And because it has a soul given to it by God, then it is wrong morally to kill that child because it is a unique human life. There's different ways that you can arrive there, but the point is, it wasn't based on a person. So much on the left is based on people. They have to have a community of agreement. It's one of the reasons, for example, they fought so hard for things like gay marriage, because to them, it's not enough for them to believe it. They have to compel other people to believe it. They need that community of agreement Because in their mind, there's no such thing as objective morality. Therefore, they have to have a majority of people agreeing with them for their belief to be real. If you don't, because if you believe in objective morality, it doesn't matter if you're the only human being on the planet that believes that you believe it to be right. The left doesn't have that. They have to have a large group of people believing it with them, or they assume that it's not correct. 
And basically, they have to conjure their beliefs out of the masses. That's the difference. And that's what this highlights. They think that because a, I guess, formerly prominent person in the pro-life movement, again, I've never even heard of her and I've been pro-life my entire life. I do this for a living and I still have no idea who this person is. But apparently somebody that at least they see as being a big deal in the pro-life movement, having a false conversion, they think that that's going to change people's minds or that's going to be a big deal. No, it, it might have, like if Bernie Sanders came out yesterday and, and said that he was a capitalist, that probably would put a significant dent in the ideas of socialism. The opposite isn't true. The righteous doesn't think that way. Let's go on to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Today's Chaplain's Report, we are continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And you may recall that yesterday one of the things that we were talking about is that Nahash and the Ammonites, they have all congregated together and they are threatening to take over a certain region in Israel, and the people in that region of Israel are so scared and so terrified of these guys, they even consider gouging out their own eye in order to avoid being taken over by these people. They say, you know what, we'll be your slaves, just don't kill us. And they say, okay, but to show us that you're sincere, you've got to gouge out everybody's eye, and they contemplate doing it. That's how terrified they are of these guys. And then Saul comes out and goes, uh, no, he gets very angry. The spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he's very angry at these people. And he even goes out and, uh, cuts his own oxen in pieces. And he says, any man that isn't willing to fight, this same thing is going to be done to his oxen. So he's using a metaphor there, but he sends a very strong message. He gathers up all the people the language that the Bible uses is that the people are united as one person. In other words, they have one mind. They are ready to fight this guy. And the way that the scripture describes it in the following verses is that they destroyed the Ammonites so thoroughly and divided them so sorely that there was not even two of them left together. So in other words, they just went through in waves and destroyed the entirety of the Ammonite army to where there aren't even two guys standing next to one another. So this was, by all measures, an absolutely crushing victory by Saul and the Israelites. And what I find really interesting is this next little episode that happens directly after that battle, where there's some contention amongst the people that have just fought the battle. You can see this in 1 Samuel 11, verses 12 through 13, where it says, Then the people said to Samuel, who is he that shall that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Remember all those worthless men? We did a chaplain's report on it, I think, two or three days ago. And you may recall that in this particular passage, 
what was being bantered about was the Saul guy that God has chosen for king. We don't know if he's really got it or not. I don't think that he should be king. Maybe God made a mistake. Maybe this isn't really the person that should be leading us. And so there's quite a bit of naysayers and they don't offer the king any any presents. They don't celebrate with him that the king has now been coronated. Basically, they just kind of are apathetic and are like, you know what, whatever, we don't really want anything to do with you. Which is also hilarious because these are probably at least some of the same people that were begging God for a king. And when he finally did give him one, they're like, really, that guy, that, that's who he picked? So the hilarious thing is that it's probably the same group of people. And they're just dissatisfied. They don't really want to follow Saul. And the reaction from the people, once Saul has accomplished, this is his first big accomplishment as Israel's king, his first win in a battlefield, all of that. Their reaction is, yeah, who were all those people that were saying that Saul's not the real deal? He's not really got it. Really, Saul, this is going to be the guy that's ruling over us? I think not. Where are all those folks now? Let's go out and let's take them down. Now, you have to understand in the context of what's going on here. First of all, Israel is a people that is not accustomed to having a king, but they knew what other countries did when they did have a king. That's why they asked for a king. When other countries, especially in this time, in this region of the world, if there were people within the kingdom that doubted the king or were seen as malcontents or rebels, it was not uncommon for the king to take part of his army and just go wipe those people out. That was a very common practice amongst other kingdoms in this region and in this time period. But this is a point where Saul comes to a crossroad. Saul has to decide, what kind of leader am I going to be? Am I going to be like every other king, or am I going to be God's king? Now, granted, I hate to harp on this because I know we've talked about this a lot, I understand that Saul goes from hero to villain. I understand that later in the scripture, Saul becomes a person that very clearly decides, I'm going to be my kind of king. I'm going to follow the practices of the kings in the surrounding areas by taking out any rebels, any malcontents, any people that aren't happy with the way that I'm doing things. Anything that might be a threat to my power, I will destroy them. Saul does make that decision later with David. But right here, right now, after his first act as king, you got to imagine that the guy is riding on a contact high. I mean, he just won the battle. Pretty much the entire kingdom is on board with him now when they see, okay, yeah, th this guy is the real deal. He can lead God's people. For somebody in this context, for somebody that has been aware of the things that go on in other countries, it would be not justified, but at least understandable that Saul would want to go out and destroy the enemies that are doing this that are bashing him or had bashed him in the past, even if they're not doing so anymore. This is his second opportunity to get rid of all the naysayers. You remember the first, when they originally saw it, Saul basically just shrugs it off. It says, the worthless men, and again, that's the Bible's words, not mine. The worthless men said this, and they were, they were basically throwing shade at Saul. Saul does nothing. Saul ignores it. The, the word that the Bible says is that Saul... And basically that Saul kept silent or Saul said nothing. I don't remember exactly how it worded it, but 
that's the indication the Bible makes a point to point out that Saul's reaction was essentially nothing. So that was opportunity number one. Now he's come to opportunity number two where he has the ability to go hard and fast and to take out everybody that doesn't think he should be king. And Saul's reaction is, no, I'm not going to do it. See, and it's even more tempting now because he has the authority, he has the backing of the people. It wouldn't just be something that could be at least viewed as a vanity, even though it would be. Saul still decides not to do it. Still decides it's not worth it, that a personal attack against him, personal animus and a personal vendetta is not fitting the role of God's king. And he's right. I think that when it comes to the nation being united, there are really two methods that Saul could have gone about with this. Get rid of everybody that wasn't on board, get rid of everyone that wasn't united, or do things God's way, merciful, deciding that, you know, maybe there's some even some value into that criticism. You see, we may not be kings today. You and I definitely aren't. We don't have that kind of power. We can't just kill people that we don't like. But I think right now, today in America, the unfriend culture and the cancel culture that wants to get everybody out of their life, I don't know how many Facebook posts and Twitter uh, memes and whatever that I've seen that are like, just get all the toxic people out of your life. Get all the people that are saying anything bad about you, that are critical of you in any way, essentially. Just get those people out of your life. What are you doing here? Seriously, if you're going to get rid of everyone that is critical of you, that is giving you a hard time, how are you ever going to grow? If you're only going to surround yourself with yes-men and people that either flatter you or are apathetic towards you, you're not going to have any real friends. And I know I sound a little bit like an after-school special at this point, but in my opinion... The mark of a good friend is one that feels comfortable enough to disagree with you or to argue with you. Because once they've done that, it A, means that they feel comfortable enough around you, they've been around you long enough to know that you're not the kind of person that's going to fly off the handle at them for doing that. And, and B, I think that the reason that that's really an indication of what a true friend is, is they care more about you as a person, whether it's something to do with your morality, a personal failing of yours. They care enough about you to want you to improve, even if it means you don't like them for a few minutes or for a short time, or even, you know, possibly for a long time. That says a lot about the kind of friends that you are. And I think that we have a a tendency and a desire to eliminate anybody from our lives, even if we can't kill them, to just get everybody out of our life that is critical of us in any way because it makes us uncomfortable. Look, some of my best friends are some of the people that are most critical of me. If you've ever watched our show back in the day when Laura Clark was on there, back then she was Laura Glidewell, if you've ever seen her and me interact, I mean, yeah, we agree on a lot of things, but sometimes she'll bust my chops on things, and that's fine. 
That's one of the reasons she is one of my best friends is because she's not afraid to tell me when she thinks I'm wrong. What we can't do is immunize ourselves to all criticism. And Saul had the opportunity to do that here and said no. That says a lot about his character. Nobody would have thought twice. Nobody would have held a grudge against him in the kingdom. Well, partly because they'd be afraid that he'd kill them. But also because... Nobody would have thought twice for a king living in that era around the culture that he was, seeing people that were naysayers that didn't want to jump on board with him leading and taking out all the rebels. And yet Saul doesn't do it. And unfortunately, the kings of Israel and Judah after this, for generations to come, are going to do exactly that. That when a prophet of God comes and tells them that they're wrong, they just kill the prophets. When anybody really says anything negative, they go after that person. Saul's not that way, and young Saul, the Saul that we see here, is a person definitely after God's own heart, at least to a degree. Maybe not to the level that David was, but he's certainly somebody that understands that mercy is a valuable, valuable quality to have in a king. And also that with that humility comes the willingness to have criticism lobbed against you and and either let it roll off your back if it's baseless or to take it to heart if it's not. And when it comes to us today, it would do us a world of good to remember that no human is above reproach. None of us are without sin. None of us are without flaws. And so we have to be humble enough to accept that and remember that if there's somebody that's criticizing us, if there's somebody that is, you know, treating us poorly, yeah, maybe that's a them problem. Or maybe it's an us problem. And even if it is a them problem, even if they're in the wrong, that doesn't mean we should just cut that person out of our life. The cancel culture has been something that is so antithetical to the way that God expects us to live. When Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, I don't think he meant love them from a distance, love them from arm's length, love them, but ne- you know, never really actually interact with them or talk to them or have a conversation with them and just tune them out every time they say something negative. Yeah, that, that's not what Jesus taught, and, and Saul's kind of modeling that for us right here in this passage. If we want to be like young Saul here, then we have to be willing to take the criticism, and, and whether it's based in something legitimate or it's something like this that is completely baseless. We can't be so thin-skinned that we allow it to drive everyone that disagrees with us out of our lives. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.